It's a lot about listening. Dreams are a big way you listen. Another way is the body. I think of the body a lot like a dream. And, you know, I had my whole cancer experience, which was a big part of my journey. Whatever's happening in our body, whatever we're feeling, we can tune into the dream of that. And that's why yoga and movement and things like that can help us get into listening to that, like the mysticism of our body. 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 Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome Rebecca Wildbear to speak about her new book, Wild Yoga, a practice of initiation, veneration, and advocacy for the earth. Rebecca came to yoga after a life-threatening encounter with cancer in her 20s, and over years of study and teaching, developed an approach called Wild Yoga, which empowers individuals to tune into the mysteries that live within the earth community dreams, and their own wild nature, so they may live a life of creative service. She has been leading wild yoga programs since 2007, and also guides nature and soul programs through Animus Valley Institute. You can find out more about Rebecca at RebeccaWildBear.com. Before we get to our conversation, I just want to remind you that this podcast is made possible only through the support of my Patreon members and YouTube subscribers. Without the support of listeners like you, I wouldn't be able to bring you the kind of intimate and engaging conversations like the one you're about to listen to. So a heartfelt thank you to all of those who are members of the Medicine Path Patreon community and School of Soul Studies, and those of you who have subscribed on the YouTube channel. I really, really appreciate your support. And if you appreciate this podcast and are able to make a contribution, you can find links in the description below to the Patreon site and YouTube channel as well as a PayPal link for one-time donations. If you can't afford to make a financial contribution, please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using and consider sharing this or past episodes with a friend or your social media network. Every single little bit helps. If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can find out more about my coaching and mentoring offerings at medicinepath.me. Now, please sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Wildbear on the Medicine Path. here with Rebecca Wildbear. Um, it's really nice to meet you, Rebecca, and I'm really excited actually to talk about yoga with you. Uh, it's been a, quite a while since I've spoken to anyone on the podcast about yoga, but it's such an important part of my everyday life. Um, so I'm really interested to hear about your new book, Wild Yoga, and uh, to hear about your story. So thanks for making the time to speak with us. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Um, I wonder, I like to start these uh, because I'm always connecting with people all around the world. If you could just give us a sense of the place that you're at, where you live, and uh, maybe just something of like the vibe of it, you know, how it feels there for you. Yeah, I'm in a tiny home, actually. Um, So you can see a little bit about it. you know, before here, it's a pretty nice tiny home, but, um, and I'm in uh, Southwest Colorado. I'm actually in a little town called Mancos, Colorado, which is 30 miles uh, Southeast, mostly, I mean, Southwest, mostly West of Durango, Colorado, which is more well-known. It's also between Durango and Cortez, and it's right at the very tippy edge of the Four Corners area. So I could get to New Mexico, Utah, or Arizona very quickly, even though I'm right here in the corner of Colorado. And it's it's um, a lot of snow out there, very sunny, kind of warmish day for late February. Um, there's a night, there's a really nice view. I'm not quite sure if you can see it out there. You can kind of see the, the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
it's um we're expecting a big snowstorm this week so that's what happens here is that uh there's a lot of been a lot of snow this winter but it's very good for nature so and we find a way to dig ourselves out and move around <laughs> yeah yeah we've had a very strange winter here we had a little bit of snow just before christmas kind of gave us that festive holiday mood but uh it's been so kind of unseasonably mild here um but we're supposed to get some kind of polar vortex this week that's maybe going to bring a cold snap and possibly some more snow but i've just noticed uh over the past few years the weather's gotten so much more unpredictable yeah we're, we weren't but we're not supposed to get that much snow in mancus because we're near the desert so it's supposed to be that we're going to supposed to get less snow than most other people in Colorado, but that absolutely has not been the case since this summer. We have gotten um, an un unprecedented amount of snow, which, you know, is actually good for the rivers and, and nature to get a lot of moisture around here. But it's been an unusual winter. Hmm. Well, um, I'd love to hear your journey that brought you to yoga. I always find that it brings a really interesting story and uh, really tells something about the person. So I wonder if we could start there, if you could talk about what led you to yoga. Yeah. I, the, well, I, I did my first yoga class when I had cancer <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, you know, I had been uh, editor of the college newspaper, resident assistant, leadership of lots of things, a student, you know, kind of a, having the full on college experience and like most young people feeling superhuman involved in environmental action and politics. And, and, uh, <clears throat> I discovered that, you know, like the cancer made me slow down and stop. I had to give up doing a lot of things and go very inward. I was also a philosophy, religious studies major. So I was very into like listening to God and, or my purpose or a higher being or something I was questioning, you know, what that was at that time. I didn't really know. I, I was pretty into mysticism. That was the closest connection I could find. And then eventually nature, what I would call nature mysticism, that was the deepest connection I could personally find. But I was trying out different, different practices at that time. And uh, when I got cancer, it really like it kind of put a crunch on, you know, it made me slow down. And that is kind of what made me go to yoga. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I, I need to be healthy. And I've always I'd always been into sports. I played basketball in high school. And I played soccer and softball. So I always had liked being physical and was quite good at it. But yoga was something quite different. And I discovered that in the first class. I had just been for a section biopsy surgery four weeks earlier. So it was actually painful um, on my body. And I know most, a lot of people say that. My yoga teacher said his first yoga class was painful. Um, and mine was too. It was, and it's also humbling, like sports I could feel good at. But yoga, I was like, whoa, I don't bend or ow, mm -hmm. this hurts. So I actually didn't go back to a yoga class for a while after my first one, um, probably about eight years in my late twenties. I like, I just knew I needed to do yoga again. I still, again, was very active backpacking and mountain biking, mostly outdoor sports at that point, rock climbing. And, um, you know, as you get a little older, even late twenties, your body gets tighter. And I just, I just knew yoga was like where I should go. So I started going to a a weekly yoga class in my remote West Virginia community. And then it was soon after that, that I knew I needed like a full on immersion that like once a week, wasn't going to quite cut it. Cause I wanted to, I lived in remote places and I wanted to be able to do yoga on my own and not always need to go to a class. So I just decided mm -hmm. I needed to do a yoga teacher training. So that, that was the first time I ever went to Costa Rica. I looked at, I got, I subscribed to yoga journal and I studied different places to see which one might be the right place for me to go for the yoga teacher training. And I dreamed about it for many years before I actually went, but yeah. uh, I, I went, you know, and uh, that was where I studied yoga teacher training. So that's like, that was the beginning of my journey. Cool. Uh, so what era was this? Like, um, cause like, there was a huge yoga boom in the nineties and uh, like, was it around that time? Cause I can't imagine West Virginia being like a yoga hotbed. Right. It was actually an early 2000. I'm old, a little older than I look. It was an early uh, 2000, like around 2001 when I lived in, when I was going to the yoga class in West Virginia, when I did yoga in my college, it was um, 1994. And at that mm. point it was still very rare. That's kind of why I'd never 
been exposed to yoga when I was younger and and uh it hadn't been at our college before generally it wasn't like a thing and then somebody had just brought it to the college and I was there like with a very small group of people just beginning to try it out yeah I mean my first experiences of yoga were in like the basement of a community center with this uh tall Dutchman who had gone to India and studied with a Yengar um but there was no yoga studios at that time in the 90s in kind of the smaller city that I grew up in. And so it's a very kind of weird underground, like literally underground, because it was in the basement of a community center, um, but outsider kind of thing. Um, and that was part of the the draw for me was that it was this kind of strange esoteric practice. And I didn't understand it. It was painful because it was like Iyengar yoga. So it was all about getting the posture correct and pushing your body and that kind of thing. Um, what kind of yoga did you experience in West Virginia at the time? And who was the teacher? Like, who's the weirdo who brought yoga to West Virginia? I'm not even sure exactly what kind of class we were doing then. It was it was pretty basic. It wasn't a vinyasa flow necessarily. It was just moving into different postures and trying them out. So I think I'd say hatha yoga would be my best guess, just a basic general hatha yoga. It didn't seem strict like Iyengar. I've, I've studied Iyengar too in later years and all sorts of other different types, but it seemed like a basic hatha yoga course. And then when I went to uh, to study in Costa Rica for what what I would call my main yoga that I studied that I studied lots of branches and included in my yoga but my teachers in Costa Rica um, Don and Amba Stapleton they became my main teachers they were the first ones I went to yoga teacher training with and and then I went and continued and did like ended up doing like a thousand hours of training with them and assisting them in many yoga trainings as an assistant yoga teacher training over many years so I became pretty steeped in their style and their philosophy and it really um, meshed with my beliefs and the other kinds of spiritual and soul work that I was doing too mm. and body work and meditation but uh, theirs was based from Kripalu my teachers Don and Amba had lived at the ashram um, back with a guru and, and in fact Don Stapleton had been one of the senior teachers there and um, and they were there. He had been there for like 20 years and Amba had been there for six. And then she'd moved out to California to do her own thing a little bit. And eventually, right after the guru fell because of some sex scandals. Um, Amrit, Amrit Desai, right? That's correct. That's yeah, correct. Yeah, I remember then, that. John and Amba then went down to Costa Rica and uh, did their own thing and created their own center. And Don actually was having some back troubles, uh, some pretty bad back troubles uh, and chiropractic wasn't helping him. And so through that, he discovered his own kind of yoga, which he has a book on called self-awakening yoga. And it's actually a kind of yoga that's good for anyone. Like sometimes people associate yoga with, you know, only you have to be strong and, you know, really in shape to do it and nobody else can do it. So his yoga self-awakening yoga is actually made for anyone like, absolutely anyone can do it and in fact it's good for anyone's kind of body to do it because you can you're really listening to your own body as you can and there's all sorts of options and variations um, it mixes like some feldenkrais in and some movement inquiries and so it's uh and 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 amba came from a more vinyasa kripalu style background and she was a bit more like hardcore vinyasa. So they would mix um, between the two of them, we would get hardcore vinyasa, and then we would also get very gentle movement inquiries. And that's, so that's the main background that I come from. And, and I've, I spent a lot of time there and I love it because Don and Amba, Don was an art teacher, art professor. So he was very into uh, empowering people to find their creativity and also mm. kind of getting in the body as a way of lining with your muse and your creativity um, I did a program with them called Inner Quest, and that was a lot about going on a quest in your body and inquiry in your body to find your creativity. So they supported my wild yoga, and I did some wild yoga at their center, and they're the ones that encouraged me at first to trademark it. They said, you better do it. There's so many problems in the yoga world. And so I did and started doing programs through there. And um, and then I also work at another organization called Animus Valley Institute. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm heard of that but i've worked well there. yeah i've had bill on the podcast oh great mm -hmm. great yeah. so i've worked there I, I started studying with uh bill my first animus program was um, when i was 29 so that was 
that was a uh, 30, uh, 20 years ago, like over, just over mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And so I've, and then I studied for six years in their guide training program and became a guide. So I've been a guide and stu- either a guide or studying with them for the last two decades. And a lot of um, that, tri- that soul work is also incorporated into my yoga. And I found a way that what Don and Amba taught me and what I learned at Animus really, um, they work together in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, or um, evoking my own creativity and my own muse uh, through listening to my body, dreams, the earth, and then bringing that into the yoga and yeah, so yeah. That, that's some of my background. Don, uh, Don Stapleton rings a bell. Was it uh, Nosara where they had a yoga center? Yeah, Nosara Yoga Institute. Now their website says Self Awakening Yoga, but um, originally it was because they moved. They physically have moved out of Nosara. But when- I, I, yeah, I remember they sold the center a few years back. They did. I remember kind of dreaming about buying it with my wife. <laughs> It's but a beautiful never. place. I love Nasara. It's definitely getting more and more developed. Uh, not quite. Yeah. When I first went there 20 years ago, it was it was a very wildernessy area. And Don and Amba and a, a one restaurant and hotel were about the only things there. And that was a really wonderful time. And it's got in the in the beaches are gorgeous, which is why it's become more and more one reason why it's become more and more popular. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. So I can't blame people for wanting to um, to move there. But yeah, it has changed quite a bit since we visited Yeah, like 15 or so years ago. Um, it's one of the first places we went when my wife and I first got together. And uh, we totally fell in love with Costa Rica. And it was starting to change. You could start to see some of that development really affect the, the locality. Um, and yeah, it's only gotten more pronounced, I think. Um, so what was the, what was like the, the seed of wild yoga? You're, you're studying with these teachers who you really love and you're loving what they're offering. What's, what was it that, uh, formulated in you that said, I'm going to, there's something different that wants to come through me and it's called wild yoga. Like, I'm really interested in the genesis of that, like where you start to deviate from your teachers or incorporate other things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's great. I I think some of it was during an inner quest class when we were called to go in and find like our own creative muse through our body. And then also just my own time on the beaches and in the wilderness areas, which, like I said, at that time, were still quite, quite wild. Um, There's a section I write about in my first book in chapter one about my conversation in the tide pools of the Costa Rica. It's, It's actually one of my favorite places in the world, those tide pools. And I was in them where where I feel um, there's a very big resonance between those tide pools and also some of my mythopoetic um, visions that have come of the mythopoetic place I'm to occupy that has to do with a cave pool. Um, Mm. And tide pool feels a lot like the cave pool to me in my mythos. So it feels like almost like a portal to me, otherworldly where things happen. And I spend a lot of time in there listening, sometimes just sitting and looking around, sometimes looking under the water at the fish. Uh, And sometimes at this time, there was hardly any people there. In fact, on this particular day, I'll tell you about, I was the only one on the whole beach in that section. It wasn't a main entrance or anything. I was alone. And I just started having a conversation with the tide pool and doing kind of yoga poses in the water, like arm balances and handstands in particular, because it's sort of Mm. fun to do them in water and at the the bottom is sandy and uh, you could fall. And so I would be in shallow water doing like the handstand, hand arm balances, and then in deeper water, trying the handstands. And then, and then I started moving onto the rocks and trying balancing poses on the rocks with the waves crashing in the rocks that surrounded the tide pool and were keeping them in. And, and um, I also went into the waves and I had a particular yoga with them as well. Like where I, I, it's one of my favorite yogas. It's like um, where I, I lie down and um, like perpendicular to the wave. And I, and I'm just about an inch beneath the surface and I let the wave kind of roll over me. I, I definitely exhale when the wave's coming over. So no water goes up my nose and, but you just kind of feel the whole energy of the wave and at its different stages and, uh, mm. and, and some different other things that I, and, and, you know, body surfing in the waves too. And then also postures on the sand. So I started and then back to the tide pool again. And I, I called it like a vinyasa or a movement flow, you know, where I was just flowing and communing. And part of it was listening to the land and asking the land, telling the land, I love, I love you. And what can I, bring to you or what can I do for you? What can I offer you? What do I have to offer, you know, such beauty as you are? And 
uh, I just, my body just started to go into these rhythms, just like in, in my classes in yoga, you know, Don emphasizes a lot. It's how he studied with his guru, the spontaneous movements of the body. It's like mm. when you just let the body go and do what it, what it feels called to do. Um, when it's like in in that flow, and that's kind of what was happening for me. It, but in nature, as I was in conversation with this place and with this land about what I could offer, and of course, when it was all over, you know, I heard nature say, "This is something you need to bring this to the world. This is this is something important." And of yeah. course, you know how easy it is to dismiss ourselves. And and I said, "No, no, no. This is just I'm just playing around. This isn't really nobody else would be interested in it." Yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> no, like I feel amazing. This is so so cool, but like no one else is going to get this or be interested. Like it's so weird. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. So I, you know, I was having this conversation and kind of nature, the conversation I was having with nature, they wouldn't let me leave until they're like, "No, you have to promise that next year you're going to do wild yoga program at in Costa Rica." Just, you have to promise, you have to ask your teachers, you have to tell them, you you have to try. And, you know, mm. of course, I, I, I didn't think it would happen. And I didn't even think my teachers would agree. So I, I just said, yes, I said, okay, I promise that I'll, I'll do my part to, to try. And my teachers said yes, pretty quickly. And so the next year, I did make a flyer and I posted it. But I was so embarrassed. I didn't advertise it. I sent not one email. I wasn't on <laughs> Facebook at that time. I sent it out to no one. So it was like, it's it's like really maybe if I don't advertise, if I don't advertise it, no one will notice and they'll never have the chance to like fail spectacularly at this thing. Exactly. So it, yeah. it um, you know, I was just thinking it was going to get canceled, but in the end, uh, two people signed up for it anyway. And, um, <laughs> I, and I was, Oh God. Yeah. I I've had, had that happen anyway. And were they, hold, was, then you're accountable. I, I right? was, then you've got to follow through. And my teachers were fine with me doing it. They had a little yoga hut that I could do it in that was away from their main hall. And so I ended up, it was really the perfect way to start because I got to do it with two people and it wasn't mm -hmm. too overwhelming for me. And I could explore what I wanted to do with these people and get a lot of feedback and offer them a lot. So then after that, it was something I began doing every year and, and more and more, and then ultimately writing a book about. Great. So uh, I can totally relate, by the way. And I think it's such a kind of blessing that new yoga teachers um, could embrace the, you know, when you're not well known, you don't have a big following and like one or two people show up at your class. I think often they'll think like, oh my God, this, this sucks. I can't, how can I do this? It's like, but like, that's the opportunity for you to really, um, test things out with people and get that feedback because there's not a big group that you're attending to. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a, quite a blessing uh, to develop something new. So when those two people show up, are you taking them to the tide pools and, and doing all the stuff you're doing on your own with them and seeing what their response was? Oh yeah, we did that. And so much more. Cause I had a whole week with them, but um, yeah, we did yoga in a studio where I start to create movement flows that are about bringing nature in that are variations actually of some of the self-awakening poses, but with a lot of nature imagery. And so I'm bringing, I'm creating my own kind of yoga in person that brings that those elements of nature in, even that can be done in a studio with poetry and music. And then I'm also going out, we're also going out to the beach beach and different places in nature. And we're doing tree yoga and we're doing tide pool yoga and we're doing ocean yoga and finding out how um, yoga in relationship with nature in our bodies, how that what what unfolds for for them hmm wonderful so that was what back in like 2006 thereabouts right i think so that sounds about right uh yeah that would sound about right and so how did it proceed from there uh did you keep offering that program at the nosara school or were you starting to branch out more already how did that happen I think I started offering, I think I offered it for another year. Or two. I think I offered it for another couple of years at Nasari Yoga Institute um, and then and got more people and so began to explore it more. But the thing is, um, I'm used to guiding programs in really remote, natural places where there's a lot of places because a big part of my offerings, too, for people are wandering in nature and having conversations with the land. And um, Nasara was getting more and more crowded. So I found it hard to give people the nature immersion I wanted in that location. 
uh, although we still had a great experience because the beaches are very still very powerful. But I started to move and try it in other more remote places. There's an eco lodge that I was a yoga teacher at for several winters that's very, very remote um, in Punta Benco, one of the more remote places that exist in Costa Rica. I did it one year there. And then I did it several years on the Osa Peninsula, which is also very wild near Corcovado National Park. Um, so I just, uh, yeah, I, I branched out into to wilder places. And um, and then I also started doing it um, in the United States, too. Um, sometimes I would do shorter programs in wilderness places. And I became a very um, I became a river guide, which I also find is a kind of yoga. It's very physical and it also involves water a lot like and something in here in Colorado that doesn't have the ocean. It was a way to be with the ocean and the water mm. systems of the world. So I trained to be a river guide and I started doing wild yoga on the river trips, which allowed people to still have conversations like a really physical conversation with the land and their bodies and their yoga. Well, and, and yeah, I can see that because something like um, river rafting, because of the danger element, kind of like surfing, like it forces you to be present because as soon as you're not present, it's like that Zen teacher coming around and whacking you with a stick. Like nature's going to slap you upside the head and say, like, pay attention. Right. And the, there's consequences. And there's just such a finesse to getting to know a, a river because sometimes it's flat and calm and you're just floating and looking up at canyon walls and then sometimes it's rushing and you're like moving through rapids really quickly and when you're in a boat and you're moving through water that way you're really getting to actually feel like the river itself which is part of being able to have a conversation with nature is really being able to make our selves vulnerable and open enough to feel like they feel to feel what, hmm. what they would feel and to learn their wisdom and and what it's like to be them by being with them and becoming so close to them. Right. And I, I would imagine that also seeing our lives, like the rhythm and flow of our lives reflected in the rhythm and flow of a river, uh, making that really tangibly felt like sometimes there's, there's moments where you're not moving anywhere, you know, it's very still, uh, but then other times you're caught up in the rapids and you're being like thrust along life or you're, you know, being thrown up against the rocks and all of that. Like, it's such a great kind of, uh, yeah, tactile, visceral metaphor for your life, right? Yeah, one of my favorite metaphors is sometimes you're upright on the river and then in a sudden instant you're out of the boat or the raft is flipped. And it's just the, the stark reality be, behind difference in those movements in those moments and rewriting yourself. And to me, I'd say rivers have taught me a lot about dancing in the tumultuous currents of my life. And sometimes when you're flipped or, or knocked out the, not to, you know, freak out, but to just keep swimming and get back on the boat, you know, to like, mm -hmm. you know, be in that moment, it's that happens. The boat flips sometimes or you pop out. Yeah. And I guess that's where like the yoga would come in is like how to maintain some level of equanimity in those differing situations like you know when it's uh when it's really calm and placid like are you getting bored are you um are you kind of like unsatisfied that nothing's happening right and when it's getting like wild and crazy uh are you able to kind of keep your cool and like you said stay in the boat or get back in the boat and keep paddling that seems to me like really the essence of what yoga is meant to help us with right it is. It is. I And I've never really liked flipping or being out of the boat, just to be honest. I, I sure. like, in some trips, you, do, you don't, you don't, you can stay certain trips, you can stay in the boat. And in fact, you know, I've guided in companies is like, stay in the boat, stay in the boat. That's the number one rule and help what you tell people. Um, but I guide, I did some, I did a training on the Zambezi river in, um, you know, in Zambia and, uh, and they, um, they had a different philosophy, which was that we're going to flip because that's just the way it is. And, mm. and you know, the sooner we get used to flipping, the better. And they actively flip a lot of times. And so I did that training and, and in very big water, which I'm definitely more afraid of, like huge water, even though a lot of times huge water is safer than less water. It's less rocky for the most part. Um, but it's still very, very scary because it's so powerful. The currents are so powerful. So I did a training there um, to just to try to uh, learn that what I was hoping to teach to be able to be okay with being underwater, being out of the boat, learning to get back in. But and that helped me a lot. 
Yeah. How was it for you? Um, this is something that I've uh, struggled with over the years. Like, do I create my own yoga uh, brand that, you know, has its own kind of unique language and things like that? Be because for me, uh, I, I was also drawing a lot of inspiration from nature and could see that at the roots of yoga, that was there. And I was really just trying to draw out more of what I felt was like really core to the the roots of yoga um, is this like nature connection. And I would call it shamanic yoga. Um, it, it was helping us get to a state where we could really venture into the imaginal realm and go on like a soul journey. Like that for me was what yoga was helping me to achieve. I wasn't trying to go for stillness of mind or anything like that, like a restraint of the mind. It was more making the mind um, placid so that something from the depths could come up and be seen and experienced. Uh, so it felt like a little different than what I was getting in, you know, from my teachers, but also in um, other yoga classes. I never felt that uh, other people were putting a focus on that. So I experimented with, you know, branding it something. Um, but I, it's always been a difficult thing for me because I don't want to claim anything of yoga and say I'm doing something new. But I also felt the need to distinguish what I was doing from what was out there in the marketplace already. So I'm just wondering, like, how that was for you, like coming up with this idea that's wild yoga and your teacher's saying, I'm going to, you should brand it. You should like really claim that. Um, and you've been doing it for a while. So I'm just interested to hear from you um, if, if that's always been kind of an easy journey for you, if, if it's something you've struggled with, uh, questions of appropriation, any of that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I would say it is something I've probably struggled with and it's it's taken a long time. You know, I've been doing it for a long time before I wrote the book. Uh and you know, I'm I'm pretty I've been pretty happy as a guide with Animus Valley Institute as well guiding those programs already created by Bill Plotkin and I was pretty happy also with my yoga teachers although they have finished, you know, doing what they do. But some of my other friends and colleagues, uh, my friend um, runs Nexus Yoga Institute down there now in Nasara. And so she's carrying on a lot of what Don and Amba did, um, at least some of it. Um, uh, and um, so I don't know, like I was just trying to find, you know, what, 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 what am I bringing that's different? And is it, you know, because I could keep doing, you know, the same things it is what I'm doing or creating is it valuable enough to really make it into something and um i also became started to become an earth activist and and care about the planet and care about uh you know doing my part to try to help stop ecocide and the destructions of lands and species and um and then in amidst that too i could see how easy it is to get burned out and and not be able to do it and so a lot of wild yoga became this this balance between um, I've also seen a little bit of a rift in the field between personal growth and activism. You know, there's people that that do the work to, to, quote, you know, help the world, save the world, like try to make a difference for land and species and animals. And then there's people that do personal work and just go into the imagination and in, in their bodies and, you know, wait and there's no action. And and I feel like there's a kind of a, a disconnect there. And sometimes one world views the other world as the place to be. And, and, uh, I, I felt called by my soul to actually bring together this, this rift a little bit, um, and, and, and show that they're actually both valuable. So, so wild yoga, it's, um, it kind of goes back to the roots of yoga, which isn't just about yoga asana, but it's about who we are and what is our relationship to everything in the world. Mm -hmm. And as, um, Amy E. Politi is one of my yoga teachers too. I studied with her a bit and she, she put a quote on my, um, an endorsement on my book. And she said a great, she said it great. Originally nature yoga used to always be about being with nature. And it's only when civilization became disconnected from nature that yoga became disconnected from nature. And, uh, and she was saying, you know, my book is, you know, I'm bringing it back to its, its foundational roots, which uh, the poses are named after animals. So it's about getting into our, our wild bodies. And so I felt like, 
in some ways, I guess wild yoga to me is my, my form of activism in a way. It's like, oh, yeah, speak, act like this is valuable. It's it's different enough from what Bill is op- offering, from what my teachers are offering, from what other people are doing. There's something here that if you do it, if you put it out there, it could make a difference. I wanted to make uh, wild yoga simple language because sometimes uh, mm-hmm. spiritual books um, can seem over people's heads and not tangible or graspable enough. And I wanted to make a language simple enough that anyone could get it, that anyone could relate to it if they if they were willing to you know, listen to it or try, the language would be simple. And I wanted to make uh, the poses inviting and simple. So again, that everyone could be invited in. And, you know, a lot of times people can't quote afford to go on yoga retreats, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make a book that was accessible, that allowed people to have the same sort of things, things that I was teaching that were unique, um, but to get it in, to be able to get it in a book. So some of those are some of all of the pieces that inspired me. And I would say, I guess, of of all of those, the biggest one was probably my love of the planet and Mm -hmm. feeling that this might be my way in my particular way that could make a difference enough to open people. If I open people again to their hearts and their bodies and listening to the earth, um, that maybe that is a way that could make a, a difference or change the world. Yeah, for sure. Look, I'm so with you on all of that. I I just um I, I put out a post today because I got a reminder that seven years ago today I released my first book, which is called Harmonic Movement, which uh the intention behind it was exactly what you're talking about. How to um bring in some like really evocative language into yoga, not stay away from any jargon, um, no Sanskrit, try to give people the straight goods so that they could have the experience wherever they are and um, keeping it quite simple actually. But for me, the simplicity allows for a greater depth in a lot of ways. It's like, um, and I, I also really agree with you that through something like the practice of yoga that is about connecting to nature, which like you said, is what it, that was the way that was the Tantra. The way to connect through the divine wasn't to get out of the body and everything. It was to, to make that communion with nature, to, to be a tree for 10 breaths. I mean, what a profound experience to be like a dog rolling around on its back or stretching after a nap. Like this is the essence of yoga is to have that experience of union with the non-human or other than human natural world so that we can remember that we are that. And I think if we can awaken that in people, then the activism uh, just becomes like a, a natural outflow from that experience because you fall back in love with the world right and if you love something you want to care for it and you want to protect it um you want everyone to enjoy it like us with our yoga it's like i want everybody to have this experience it's amazing and it changed my life uh so i really feel like um we're kindred spirits in this and um uh i would love to hear a little bit about this Okay, so Bill, for people who don't know Bill's work, I had him on the podcast a while back. And one of the things we talked about, which was a new idea to me, but not a new experience for me, but he put a name to something that I'd experienced. And he calls it the, uh, discovering your mythopoetic identity. And as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what mine is. And I have a story, how it came to me and all of that. And it's a really special thing. It's like a guiding myth for my life in terms of what my role in this ecosystem is, what my, um, I think Bill calls it the ecological niche, because nature doesn't make waste. Everything has a purpose. We're the only ones who are trying to find it. The bumblebee has no problem finding his niche, the, the birds, the squirrels, everybody else. So humans are in this unique predicament of like wondering what our purpose is in all of this. So um, you you mentioned earlier that you had found this. So I'd love to hear that story of how you discovered your mythopoetic identity, if you're comfortable sharing it, because I know for me, it feels a little bit personal and private sometimes. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's that's a big part of my wild yoga book um, in, you know, uh, it, pieces of my story are written throughout the book because 
I would say my mythopoetic identity, which it often does, sometimes it doesn't just come in in one moment. It 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 keeps coming over over years or over time. In fact, I never call it really done. If I say it's done, I might put the cap on, you know, more important information coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will say there's, you know, there's some pieces of it. And I think it's in chapter two, I tell the story of my first vision quest and um, seeking like my purpose in that and the name Braveheart that came to me. Um, And I tell the whole story of it, but certainly I wasn't, that was at the very beginning and I wasn't used to nature speaking back to me in any way. You know, I talked to nature, sure, but I didn't really know that I heard much back, which is often the case, you know, and it takes a little while sometimes to really hear, but I was fasting too. So my, my mind and my brain was altering. And that's the whole point of fasting. It is to, you know, kind of weaken the ego in our everyday of relating and alter us so that we can hear things that we might not otherwise hear. And so on the third day, I had a bit of a, a meltdown um, where I felt like I was dying because I was hiking back up this huge hill after putting a stone on my buddy pile. And uh, um, I, I had cancer when I was 21 and I was 29 when I did the quest. So it was reminding me of like my near death experience with cancer mm-hmm. as I was feeling like my heart bounding and like I could hardly walk up the hill. And I thought, oh, my God, what if I'm going to die out here? And, uh, and then that's, that opening was when I got back up on the rock and I had been asking, what is my name the whole time every day, but I wasn't getting, you know, too much of an answer. So I, but then suddenly an answer came through and it was like a vision. So immediately the word Braveheart, mm-hmm. it, it sent this vision into my mind and it, all these flashes of memories that of times I was brave and how I had felt in those moments. And then times that I had failed to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the pain of that turning away. And so I said, no, that's a movie, you know, but it was too late. It was, it was, too, it was too late that those visions had, had already come through me. And it's it's, too- yeah, it's taken by Mel Gibson. It can't be mine. It sounds ridiculous if I say it. So, so six, it took me still six months after that quest to accept the name. I had to get up in the middle of the night, you know, crying and writing poetry and start to feel my heart you know, my heart opening and unraveling to begin to realize that, okay, I get it. This is the name and to even begin to start to discover what it means. So that was my, that was one of my first glimmers of soul, but there was more as well, you know, throughout um, some years later, there was a myth, mythic image of a tree trees for many years. I wrote chapter five is all about my relationship with trees, or at least some glimmers into my relationship with trees, but trees were a very big part for me of my soul's journey, uh, talking with them, being nurtured by them, even being lovers with them, and ultimately finding out that mythically, I am in part a tree, a tree with wings and and fruit and uh, and a cave pool underneath with, with that goes way down and cracked open to the heart of the world and opening to an underground river that, um, and, and there's a bear involved too in that. And that's a story I tell in chapter four. So there's I think of um, our soul story as a whole cosmology and mm-hmm. my book tells a lot of pieces of mine, but it doesn't even tell everything because it's so, it's so big that it's, it's bigger even than me. It's even bigger. I think than I can put words to as a, as a full story. Cause I'm, I'm like, I'm sort of like in the dream of it and I keep mm-hmm. uncovering yeah. pieces of the dream of it and learning more and more as we go. But one of the names I go by mythically is um, Bravehearted, which was that first vision I, I told you about Bravehearted, a wild love prayer bear um, who, who who lives in the dark waters, a witness to horror and beauty. Mm. Mm. So that's what I feel like my call or part of my personal cosmology is. Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the things I think it's so important for us as well, a lot of us, I feel are like spiritual orphans. You know, we've been disconnected from um the, our family lineages spiritual traditions a lot of people have uh, become disillusioned with the organized religions uh and we're seeking i think a cosmology like a coherent story of the world that has us in it you know and so i think it's been important to me um something that arose spontaneously was this cosmology, a story I could tell. And I I remember the morning it came to me like really clear 
And I, I just wrote it down like, and it came out like a story, like a creation story mm. They had me in it and had something to do with my purpose and explained why the hell I was here and born in this particular circumstance, you know, in this crazy family and gone through all the trouble I've gone through. Um, and I, I've never thought about like how, how to like help someone come to their own mythopoetic story or that to find that cosmology to, you know, the story to live by like Carl Jung, I think said at one point that it was the most important thing is for us to discover the myth that we're living. And I think that's something to do with what you're talking about. Right. So how do you, uh, how do you help people find theirs? And do you agree that it's like so essentially important? Yeah, I agree. It's I agree. It's 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 essential. And particularly, I think it's essential if you're called to it. Um, I do know people I, I don't I don't I, I think it's great. We we work at Animus a lot with soul and wholeness. And um, one of the things I think Bill has said that I've taken is if the whole world could um, could be whole and intact, meaning like um, ecocentric, like where they cared about the world, um, the world would be completely different, mm-hmm. even if even if they didn't know their soul. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't like to, you know, quote, force anyone like, oh my God, everybody's got to know their mythos or their soul. But I do believe that people who are called to it, who are allured by it, it's almost like you can't not go for it. You can't not listen for it. There's no other option. It it almost can feel like nothing else is worth doing. I can't focus on this or that. I, I don't, you know, the dominant culture, what's going on in the world. It's like, I like, this is so important. Like my attention needs to go to that. And, and uh, that's um, when it's like that, when you have that pull to soul, to the soul's journey, like there's, yeah, absolutely. It's important. And, and it does take time needs to be taking time out for it. It can sometimes feel like you're going a little crazy or doing something a little strange, but it's definitely well worth um, the journey. And Mm -hmm. I help people uh, attune to that. Um, a lot by listening to their dreams. Dreams are a really big key. Um, mm-hmm. Our dream life is when our mind is shut off and we're just listening to like, I would say maybe the earth's imagination or the dream time and we're and allowing these images to come through. And, you know, a lot of times when you do personal work with people it can be about allowing the ego to guide you. Like, what is, what do I want? What makes me feel better? And those, those can be great questions, but if we're trying to root ourselves in soul or in the dream of the earth, then we're actually just, it's a lot about listening mm-hmm. and dreams are a big way you listen. Another way is the body. I think of the body a lot like a dream, you know, mm-hmm. whatever physical symptoms or pain, you know, I had my whole cancer experience, which was a big part of my journey. Uh, whatever's happening in our body, whatever we're feeling, we can tune into the dream of that. And that's why yoga and movement and things like that can help us get into listening to that in, in a dream, like, like it is a mystic, like the mystic mysticism of our body. Mm-hmm. I, I have a practice I call listening to the mystery in the body. And then another big piece is listening to nature and making ourselves vulnerable to nature. That's why I do, I lead quests and I take people out on extended experiences in nature. So they either go on wanders for a few hours or quests for quests overnight for several days. But either way, whether it's a short time or a long time, they're going out into nature with the intent on listening. Almost it's it's almost dreamlike too. We call it the deep imagination. So it's kind of like where you're in a creative flow in nature and things kind of come up unbidden when you don't mm-hmm. try to make them, but you also ask your biggest questions, you share your biggest feelings. So those, those windows of listening, I would say would be some, there's others, but I would say those to me, those three are at the top of the list for how do I help people listen for their souls? Yeah. Listening to the dreams, listening to the body, listening to nature, listening to everything in nature, like your body in nature is different than it is in your home or at your office. Right. Uh, and so even noticing that difference or what awakens in you, that's, uh, different when you're out in nature for a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, have you ever checked out the work of Arnold Mendel? He's got, he's done some work around the dream body. I have, it's been, it's been like more than a decade, but I did read him probably in my early thirties and was yeah. interested by what he was up to. Yeah. He's done some interesting stuff over the years. Um, 
Well, this is amazing. Uh, I, I just love hearing all of this. And it sounds like maybe the Animus Valley has been a good affiliation for you in terms of being a practitioner and guide and teacher. Um, how did you discover them? And uh, how did you get started? And what was the journey to becoming a, a guide with them? Um, I was a I was a wilderness guide. I'd worked for Outward Bound, and I'd worked as a school counselor. I had a master's in counseling, and then I moved into the field of wilderness therapy, working with troubled teens and sometimes young adults who were sent to the wilderness um, for recovery. And so, I had thought, "Wow, this is great! I get to work out in the wilderness. That's exactly what I want to do." Um, but after a couple of years of that, I realized that there was something missing still, something that felt huge. Um, because still the way that people engaged with nature, myself and others where we worked, it felt like nature was this backdrop and almost like, well, we were using nature for human healing, but it felt like there, like I was remembering back to stories of indigenous peoples and the way they commune with the land. And so that's the way that I felt a longing to commune. And I found a, a brooch, you know, and I thought I was thinking, gosh, do I need to go to get a PhD in eco-psychology or what, you know, what do I need to do? And amidst that searching, I found Animus Valley Institute and then they came out to do a program. It's one of the first times I ever went to a personal growth workshop outside of just like what's required, you know, by your job. And, and uh, you know, it was a few hours away in Virginia. I lived in West Virginia. And so I went to a Soulcraft intensive. It actually was their first one that they ever did on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. They did Quest, but they had never done a Soulcraft intensive. And and so it was like somehow it was like it was just it was perfect. Like um, conversations across the species border, dream work, ceremony. I just couldn't believe the world that I'd stumbled into. And suddenly it, you know, what I saw there made everything that I was doing in my wilderness therapy look so much less and mm-hmm. not really where I wanted to be. So um, within six months, I did a vision quest with Animus and I moved out West to Utah. And uh, then I, six months after my quest, I signed up for the guide training program and I started for six years, did did the guide training program and was just immersed. I mean, I did wilderness therapy still as my day job, you know, to make a living. And then I used all of my vacation time and everything else to just study um, those courses so that I could become a guide. And and then for a while, when I became a guide, I still only guided a few programs a year. And so I still kept my wilderness therapy job. And I actually, I would go to Costa Rica in the winter and study with my teacher's yoga. And then I would do wilderness therapy in the summer. And then I would do animus programs amidst that all. And then eventually I was able to just leave my wilderness therapy job. Actually, Don Stapleton had a bit to do that do with that. He invited me to guide a program in Nassar in August when I was supposed to be doing wilderness therapy. And I realized I wanted to go do that. And I, you're not supposed to take that much time off in the summer when wilderness therapy. So I just realized I just had to quit. So I did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I just gave myself full time to um, my animus programs, my wild yoga programs, my personal guiding sessions that I do with people on my own, my own listening. Hmm. Wow. That's inspiring to me, uh, you know, as a kind of fellow practitioner, but often I felt like um, uh, I've never had a place to belong because I, I find there's very few kind of organizations that have such a deep orientation to soul and imagination and the wild. Um, Maybe one or two of those things, but very few embrace all of them and make them so central. Uh, So I'm I'm intrigued again to to maybe dig into Animus's offerings. I know there's not a lot happening up here in, uh, in Canada. So I wonder... They need some kind of affiliate partner up here or something. <laughs> yeah, they, we'll they, uh, I think they do some, they've been doing some programs up there. I haven't been up there myself in a while, some years since before COVID, but I believe my colleague Doug and some others came to, um, a lot of times they go to Vancouver Island. Um, mm-hmm. um, and there, yeah, there hasn't been as much in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there is a couple guides up there though. And, um, Bill and Janine just moved up to uh, Washington State, so oh, I would imagine, really? that, I imagine that might be changing in the future. That there might be more offerings that they're doing up that way. 
maybe there's something meant to be there. Well, that's really intriguing. Let's just leave it at that. Um, I know people over the years have kept pointing me to Animus and said, look, with everything you're doing, like, these are your guys, like these are your people over here that are doing the same thing, but there's like a network and there's support there and, you know, structure that can help you and all that. And uh, I'm such a kind of lone wolf. Like that's part of my mythopoetic identity is the lone wolf. Uh, but I as I, as I get older, I, I think it's a reasonable thing. And I just want to say, I just want to say, you know, um, belonging to me sometimes is about, having some of the same core values, maybe not even all of the same core values, but some of the same core values like that you really, uh, that are around your purpose. But there can be a lot of tumultuous, you know, there can be a lot, a lot to deal with in relationships in order to, you know, make, make it work. And sometimes, in fact, uh, having to work with people that, you know, you, that there's struggles with and, so I can understand that. Um, and I, I, I kind of have the pull. I'm a bit of a hermit too. So I have the both and, you know, like the pull mm-hmm. to, to be, you know, that hermit with the muse, with my own muse and true to my own muse. And then also um, to dance in relationship and try to give and receive and, and be together and commune. But there's challenges in both ends, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially as I get older, like I'm getting close to 50 now, I'm starting to feel more capacity for that dance with, with other and with more structure. Um, And I, I know that that's a place where I felt a lot of growth, like coming into those situations and having to get along and having to compromise and all of that has been really helpful to me like it's really easy for me to be a lone wolf and a hermit and the yogi in the cave that's easy for me i'm really happy there but something keeps drawing me out into the world into seeking collaboration and running up against all of the difficulties i have for a reason and i part of my story is that my soul's here to learn some of those lessons and if i don't learn them now it's going to be you know next time around you know (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, great. Rebecca, it's great it, to take that pull. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if we don't listen to the call of our soul, we do so at our own peril. It's true. It really can feel like there's just no other choice. That's usually soul checkmates us. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sooner or later, she's going to grab you by the hair and drag you along. <laughs> That's how it has felt in my life. And, and and there's a lot of joy that comes in that. And then there's also a large sense of responsibility. Um, you know, the ego isn't totally choosing their life anymore there. Um, because what really yeah. feels good isn't, isn't like, uh, you know, all those, whatever things that are like about making the ego feel good. Yeah. It, the ego gratification and puffing up the ego. It's usually like, um, the idea, like Jung said that any encounter with the numinous with the more than human is always experienced as a defeat for the ego. Mm-hmm. And I've just found that to be true. And so it's a good sign for me. If my ego feels defeated or deflated, that's uh, probably good for my soul actually. So who mm-hmm. am I serving here? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That, And I'm sure from talking to Bill, you know, to be soul initiated is to live for your soul, to live married to your soul where the ego lives to serve the vision. Mm-hmm. And I think the another important part of that is when you're a servant to soul, it's not just like, quote unquote, my individual soul, but recognizing that that soul is completely interconnected and interdependent with the anima mundi, with the soul of the world. Um, there just happens to be a little piece of that contained in this form, in this body, with this personality and everything else associated with it. But it's much larger than... Um, little me totally exactly i mean i uh i mean just as an example i don't know whether i would have chosen a a public life or doing a lot of talks because i'm actually rather shy and would have might (laughs) maybe just chose to stay out in nature and just be sort of like you know kind of hidden you know behind the trees. but soul you know my muse said write this book and now you know it's out in the world world front or stage but you know really personal stories of my life 
So that's just one example of, you know, living in service to soul takes us to all sorts of places that our ego might not have chosen those same paths. Yeah, I totally hear you. Uh, it's not it's not my natural inclination to broadcast conversations with people to the public and all that, but I can't stop doing it. Every time I, I think I've had enough and like I'm kind of sick of like experts and authorities and like, oh god, and I'm like serving this doing this public service and not getting a whole lot back. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm done with it. I might take a little break, but something drags me back in, you know. And um so I just, I'm just following it. Yeah. I'm just following it. I'm trying to serve it, trusting that it's for some greater good. Um, and so you've got the book out now and you've got to kind of serve the book in a way. And so you've got to have these conversations and you've got to like get out there and kind of tell people about it. And I'm sure that's not, um, yeah, exactly what you'd signed up for, but it's part of it, I guess. Right. It is. I mean, if I, believe in what I wrote, which I do, is a helpful thing, then the best way to help it reach people is to be on talks and and share about it. But it is, it's kind of, I'm I'm a guide, so it's not like that took a while to stand in front of a group of 10 or 12 people. And, you know, but I've done that now for 20 years. So I'm a little bit more comfortable. But all those people's faces I can see and I can speak or not speak and respond to what I'm seeing. But, you know, in writing a book and in public speaking, you're just speaking in to whoever's listening and you don't quite know if it's landing or the response. And uh, so it's it's a different a different medium that I'm just getting used to. Mm. Yeah, I found for me, it's just about having this conversation. So thinking about the person in front of me and um just trying to be open and curious, not thinking so much about, you know, what, you know, what the publisher wants us to talk about and all of that. It's like, no, I want to just have like a real conversation with this person I get to spend time with. And then part of me paying back uh, what I feel is the gift of that, you know, cause it's a real honor to talk to you guys. Um, you know, you get this invitation from this guy you've never met and you show up and you give me an hour, an hour and a half of your time and I appreciate when people like you show up and have like a real conversation. You're not just giving me the byline of the book. You know, you're not reading me the the back cover. Uh, we're having an actual conversation and you're going with the flow. And so we're in it together. And then I feel like, well, we've had like the, the benefit and the gift of that experience. Got to share it, right? Because it's not just for us. So that that helps guide me in a way. It's just like showing up, having a real conversation with somebody, and then kind of, you know, the old yoga idea of like letting go of uh, the outcomes, you know, just focusing on your task at hand um, and forgetting about like the fruits of your labor. Just do the labor, do the work. And so for me, this is the work and uh, a way to serve soul and the soul of the world. So thanks for being a co-conspirator in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for playing, you know, and yeah, like, it is play. Mm-hmm. So, how can um, people find out more about you and your offerings? What's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I have a website. Um, it's rebeccawildbear dot com. So www.rebeccawildbear.com. dot com. So I guess that would be the best place to go um for animus valley institute work you could go on their website at animus.org and see what i'm offering through them my website links to theirs so you would i do programs with wild yoga and those those are listed on my website and the animus programs are listed on their website great you got any um retreats or quests coming up this summer yep i have a lot of programs coming up this summer and uh they're the ones I'm doing for Animus. A number of them for 2023 are listed. The ones in fall aren't quite up, I think, but uh, most of them are up. And um, with my own wild yoga programs, I'm just in the process of putting them up on my website in the next week or maybe two. Um, but I'm about to do some online offerings. I'm going to have an online offering, uh, like an online class on each of the chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to take it slowly. It'll be like a once a week 
um, kind of class and then with one individual session. So you don't have to do all the chapters in the book. You can pick whichever chapter, if there's a chapter you really want to focus on and just do that one. And so this year, I'll probably only get to the first four chapters or so. And then after that, we'll, we'll be taking our time, making our way through the book. And I also am doing some in-person wild yoga programs up in the New England area in the fall and in Costa Rica in the winter. And uh, in 2024, I'm trying to consider what else other other ones I might do. There's a lot of options, maybe another one on the river or or something like that. Sounds good. Staying busy, serving soul. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks again, Rebecca. And um, maybe we'll see you down the road. Thank you. That sounds great. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite app, share it with a friend, or leave us a review. If you're interested in joining the conversation, head on over to the Medicine Path Online Community and School of Soul Studies at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. Until we meet again on the Medicine Path.